If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Try Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost, built for WordPress creators by WordPress experts. With 100% uptime, incredible load times, and 24-7 WordPress priority support, your sites will be lightning fast with global reach. And with Bluehost Cloud, your sites can handle surges in traffic no matter how big. Plus, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. Get started now at Bluehost.com. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Are readers getting lazier? Well, that was certainly the fear in the 18th century, all thanks to the Humble Index. In today's episode, we're speaking to Dennis Duncan, lecturer of English literature at University College London, about the surprising and surprisingly snarky history of the index, including how it has saved heretics from the stake and been weaponized to keep politicians from office. Asking the questions was Kev Lotchen, section editor of History Extra and deputy editor of BBC History Revealed. Today I'm joined by Dennis Duncan. Dennis is a lecturer of English literature at University College London. He's previously a Munby Fellow in Bibliography at the University of Cambridge and he's the author of a number of academic books and translations. Um, Dennis, welcome to podcast. It's great to have you here. Thank you so much for having me. Lovely to be here. <laughs> um, today we're not talking about an academic book, we're talking about index, comma, a brief history of the, and it's all about one of those parts of the book at the back that I wager most people wouldn't think about unless they need it. So just to get us all on the same page here, 
Could you tell us what is an index in this very modern sense and what brought you to write a book about it? Amazing. Sure. Yes. Th- thank you for that um, question. Also, thank you for using that phrase on the same page, which I hope we'll come back to uh, later on. So an index is, is uh, first and foremost, exactly what you think it is. It's the pages at the back of a book. Um, let's break it down, though. It's, it's, a, it's a table that has two columns. Um, one column is going to point you, to indicate. It, it's the index finger that tells us where to go. And the other column has our keywords. It's the thing that we look up. Now, that column that has the keyword needs to be in some order that we can navigate, usually alphabetical order. So you can have a very long book, but as soon as you think of the concept that you want to look up in it, it's easy to find in that first column because it'll be it'll be there alphabetically. And that means it's easy to get to the locator that tells you where to find it in the book. So that feels like a very complicated way of describing a very simple or almost kind of intuitive thing. But but we have to remember that even simple and intuitive things have to be invented at some point. Um, the other thing that I would say, though, so an index is uh, what we recognise at the back of a book. It's also the uh, um, information technology structure that underpins the internet. So we're recording this podcast. It's about quarter past two in the afternoon. I've probably used Google about three dozen times already today, just sitting, doing my teaching, doing my work, doing some writing. Um, Every time we use a search engine, we're not searching the web. Google, whatever search engine we use, does that in the background. It does that all of the time. It crawls the web and it puts the results into tables what they call an index of the internet. So when you search Google, you're not searching the web, you're searching an index of the web. So when I write a history of the the index, it sounds very niche, okay, but it's something that we definitely use pretty much all the time. Every time you get twitchy, every time you think, you know, what was that actress in? how, How many did he score last season? And you go to your phone and you type that in, you're using an index. You really are. The funny thing is that that index was invented by monks about 800 years ago. I'm glad you mentioned inventions because one of the things um, you write in your book is not invented once, it's invented twice. How, how does that come about? Well, that's right. I mean, there's a few inventions, that, that are, a few things that are invented twice. Uh, the ones that I think of are the light bulb that, that has uh, two people uh, claiming to have invented it around about the same time, or mathematical calculus, which which uh, um, gets uh, discovered or invented, if we like, uh, around about the same time. When you have these things, where, when different people in different places arrive at the same discovery simultaneously, it's really interesting because it tells us something about the culture. It tells us that, that the moment was ripe, that people really needed that thing at that time, or, or, or the science had got to a point where that next step was able to be made by uh, two people simultaneously. The index is one of those. So I'll tell you about um, how it was discovered twice, but then I also hope we can have a bit of a discussion about why that was. What, what was the context that meant that was an obvious next step? It gets discovered round about the year 1230. Let's say 1230. Um, once in Paris and once in Oxford, um, the Paris version of the index is what we call a concordance. Um, I'll probably come back to that term. That's basically a word index. It was a word index of the Bible. The friars at the Dominican friary of Saint-Jacques in in the south of Paris on the left bank took the Bible and took every word from the Bible and put them in alphabetical order. I took the 10,000 most common words in the Bible, so we're not using maybe prepositions or, 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 but uh, pretty much every other word from, from, from the Latin Bible, put them in alphabetical order and put locators 
of where you need to go in the Bible to find that word. Locators being the book and the chapter, and each chapter they divide into seven. So we haven't got chapter and verse yet. Bible verses don't get sort of uh, standardised till the middle of the 16th century, but Bible chapters have been standardised around about the year 1200. So these are a new invention, and in about 1230 they're used to, to do a word index of every word in the Bible. Meanwhile, across the channel in Oxford, there's a man called Robert Grosstest, He's not quite there yet, but he's about to become Bishop of Lincoln, but he's an incredible polymath. He's translated uh, Aristotle, he's, he's read all of the church fathers, and he's in Oxford, he's sort of preaching to town and gown in Oxford uh, in his late 50s, and in all of his enormous reading, he reads everything. He'll go into pagan literature to read the latest Arabic philosophers, or go back and read things in the Bible or patristic writing, and as he does, he has a list of about 400 concepts. These are the major ideas that Grosstest is interested in. And every time he comes up against one of these, he'll just do a little note in the margin. He has a sort of vocabulary of about 400 symbols. So the symbol for imagination is a little flower, which he'll draw in the margin. And then when he's finished the book, he can go and add that to his index, his his table, his, his sort of universal index of all of the places that he comes across these concepts. So Grosstest is inventing a what we call a subject index. That's it's it's based on one person's reading, the, the, the subject, but also it's a subject index and it's a list of all the subjects, even if it doesn't say information in the text, no imagination in the text. Even if it doesn't say imagination in the text, Grosstest realizes this is about imagination. I'll put my symbol there. I'll put this, add this to my list of locations for the keyword imagination. So we have two versions of the same thing. We have the word index that is a single book index, in this case the Bible, and we have the subject index where you don't have to use the exact word, but as long as that subject turns up, uh, you can find where it is. And in Grosstest's case, this is this is the kind of parchment Google. It, it, it goes everywhere. He's read everything and he's indexed the lot. And you mentioned there about context, about why it was these two versions occur at the same time. What's the background there that makes that suddenly a desirable thing? Yeah, exactly. So two things. Uh, um, one is the arrival of the universities. Uh, um, around about the start of the 13th century, uh, the universities in, in Paris and Oxford and Bologna um, emerge. So teaching happens on a different scale. The other one is the emergence of the preaching orders. Um, instead of monks in these isolated communities who devote their whole life to just reading the Bible. You have friars, Dominicans and Franciscans who live in large cities, who go out into the world and they preach. So you have two types of, a new type of speaking really, well not entirely new, but the sermon and the lecture, preaching and teaching. Suddenly there's a lot more of this going on and if you've ever tried to, to write, I haven't tried to write a sermon, but I've written a lot of lectures um, and I know that you need to use books in a much more economic way. It's lovely to sit down of an evening and read a novel, um, but if I read in that mode uh, in order to produce my lectures, I wouldn't get anything done. I need to know where's that bit, where's that quote, where's that thing I needed. You're going to do a lecture, you're going to do a sermon this weekend, it's going to be on fish. Okay, well, where do we have fish? There's the feeding of the 5,000. What else is there? Conveniently, the friars at Saint-Jacques have just done a concordance to the Bible. You can, you can look up all of the references and you can jump around in this kind of sparky, interesting, exciting way around multiple parts of the text. So preaching and teaching, uh, the need to use books creatively 
to be able to find what you want um, in a non-monastic way. It's really interesting you talk about uh, creating a concordance for the Bible, because, and you've also mentioned the subject under it, because I understand that there is one case where the difference, it, it saves a man from going to the stake. It's such a wonderful example. What if you tell us a bit about that story? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So this is the, the latter part of the reign of Henry VIII. It's 1543, and we're in Windsor, and there's a singer, a, a chorister at St George's Chapel in, in uh, Windsor Castle called John Marbeck. And Marbeck is suspected of being a Calvinist, be, being part of a heretical sect in Windsor. So the authorities arrest him, uh, take him to prison down in, in Marshalsea in London, and they search his home. And it's not looking good for Marbeck. They suspect he's not educated. He hasn't had an extensive Latin education. Um, so they think that he's a pawn. He's a small player in a, in a larger sect at Windsor. While they're searching his house, they find that he's been making an index to the Bible. And he's got as far as the letter L. It's really fascinating the way he's just been doing this, the, the way you'd imagine. He's got as far as the letter L. And they say, right, this is definitely dodgy. There's something heretical going on. They think that this is a subject index. They think he's taking orders because he can't speak Latin, because he's not clever enough, the authorities think. Who are you taking orders from? He's, uh, um, he's being grilled about this. Um, what's this index doing? Presumably, you're remixing the level on, thing, on certain things. You're turning up the, the dial on certain heretical ideas. You're suppressing others. And Marbeck goes, no. He says, no, this is a concordance. It's just a word index. And there's really no ideology. Um, I'm not doing any thinking here. He says, what I do is I've got a Latin concordance of the Latin Bible, and I just go through it, look up every word, translate that and they say well you don't you don't have good enough latin to do that and he goes we well, don't need much latin to just go through word by word and they go right this doesn't look good he says listen i'll prove it you know i've only got up to the letter l well bring me a latin concordance bring me some quills bring me some paper and set me a few words from the second half of the alphabet and come the morning i'll have written the index entries for those that, that will prove that I'm not taking orders, I can do this, I'm just translating a Latin concordance. Anyway, they do, and he does, and essentially what he demonstrates then is really his index to the Bible is non-ideological, it's just a word list, it's just a concordance, he's just translating a Latin concordance. There's no Calvinist uh, sort of remixing going on, and that's it, and he gets off, and he lives for decades more. He lives well into Elizabeth's reign. He has a career as a, as a musician in uh, Elizabeth's England, all because he's demonstrated the difference between a word index, a concordance, which has got no mediation, if you like, which really just takes the words and put them in a different order, and what the authorities thought it was, which is a subject index, where somebody intervenes and says, hmm, what will my readers want to read here? Hmm, they'll be more interested in this concept and not that concept and so on. And that difference, that distinction between the, the mediated subject index and the non-mediated concordance uh, basically uh, means that Marbeck gets to, gets to live rather than being burnt. And it's fascinating because there are a lot more examples in history where there is that kind of ideological, uh, personal and subjective um, element in indexes. And I'm going to ask you about a couple of those in a minute. But before we go forward in history, I'd like to pop back very briefly because one thing I was surprised to read about in your book is the Library of Alexandria. 
and oh, how yeah. there's kind of an element of an index there before there's a book. How does that work? Well, that's a really good question. Oh, so the Library of Alexandria is there as the um, example of where we think alphabetical order emerged. Okay, so the order of the letters of the alphabet is around uh, maybe for about a, a thousand years before Christ. There's no reason why letters need to be in any particular order, but it makes makes it useful for people learning to read, to learn the alphabet. You, you learn to sing A, B, C, D, tune a twinkle, twinkle, little star, da, 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 da. And that goes back uh, uh, into the ancient Greek world. We find Etruscan uh, uh, alphabets in order. But nobody's had the idea of using that to put other things in order until you get the Library of Alexandria. The Library of Alexandria um, is vast. It's really the sort of uh, um, classical version of big data, possibly half a million books there. And when I say books, I mean scrolls. Now, that's really difficult to navigate. You don't need a complex navigation system, complex ordering system, when you have uh, something that you can store in your memory. But when you have data that's too big to to, to really sort of conceptualise, then you need a map. You need a sort of distillation of it. Um, And it's probably a man called Callimachus who has the idea of taking the orders of the letters of the Greek alphabet and saying, well, here's a thing that will tell you where the scrolls are by the people whose names start with A and where the ones that by people whose names start with B. This is fresh. This is a, a brand new conceptual leap. Oh, right. You know the way that those things are ordered w- when you learn how to read? Well, what if we take that ordering and we use that to tell us where the books are in the library? So that seems to me astonishing. That seems to me one of those incredible moments where you think that something that couldn't have possibly been invented was invented. One of those things that's, that's sort of so fundamental to the way that we read the world that we think, well, it must be intuitive. Well, actually, using alphabetical order. When you take your phone and you scroll through your contacts list and it's all in alphabetical order, Callimachus came up with that uh, in the Library of Alexandria. It's mind-blowing. Yeah, I, I mean, it is, it is amazing. It's only just one more reason that, you know, you really wish the Library of Alexandria still kind of could exist. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, in terms of your own book, um, because obviously your book has an index, so I thought, well, that's a great place to start with examining your book. And I love the fact that in your index it has jokes in it, and I won't, I won't, I won't spoil it. But this does bring us to the idea that the index historically hasn't just been for categorization. People do editorialize indexes, and you know they can tend to be satires, they can tend to be weapons. Could you tell us a bit about how that's panned out? Yeah, well, first of all, I need to, to shout out to my indexer, Paula Clark Bain, who, who's a who's a genius. She's she's a very distinguished indexer. She used to be secretary of the Society of Indexers, but she's also studying to be a crossword setter. And so, I think in in the index that she did for me, that sort of it, it's really got the stamp of her personality. That, that it's both an excellent index that will really help you to navigate the book, but it also has cryptic jokes and anagrams and all sorts of things where if you know Paula you think god that's so Paula but this is really part of a a tradition that goes back about 300 years so the index we can talk about this in a moment but the index sort of emerges through the late middle ages becomes relatively common but with the advent of printing gets a real boost and by the start of the 16th century you can really find indexes in every kind of book it's really like once you're familiar with something some people are going to start riffing on it some people are going to start playing off it and this really happens round about the year 1700 
Possibly 1698 uh, would be the first example. But what happens here is people start to do what I might call attack indexes. They, they go after each other in the back of a book. Now, what you need to do here is if somebody publishes a book, say you have a politician, say you're a politician, they're a rival politician, and you realise that when they were younger, they published, for example, their travel memoirs, you can bring out a new edition of their travel memoirs and add an index to it where you point the finger at all of the moments where they look naive or uh, where they use bad grammar or just where they look a bit stupid or maybe where they're a bit too complimentary about the Pope or friendly with foreigners. Um, all, all of these things, um, it's basically an index of the book's flaws drawing attention to, uh, yeah, it's an index in bad faith, if you like. We, we spoke earlier about um, how, apart from a word index, apart from a concordance, an index is a mediation. Now, what if that's a bad faith mediation? What if you are actually using the index to mock the text that you're supposed to be serving? This starts to happen in, in the um, early 1700s. We get a spate of them. We get Whig indexes attacking Tories. We get Tory indexes um, attacking Whigs. We even get um, an example of somebody doing this kind of by stealth. Um, so somebody who, the, the ones I was describing earlier are performances. They're, they're like buying private eye. They're supposed to be read and laughed at and to take somebody down a peg or two. But actually there's a, there's a history book, a history of England by a Tory historian called Lawrence um, Eachard that comes out in 1718. And the person, the hack called John Oldmixon, who was, who was, paid to compile an index for it is an ardent Whig and secretly he's done an index that um, makes fun of the, the sort of Tory aspects uh, of this history particularly those around the Civil War and its immediate aftermath so what Old Mixon realizes that if you've got a massive three volume three thousand word history most people are going to enter it via the back and if you're the gatekeeper, if you control how people enter that history, you control whether they read it in the mode of satire or whether they take it seriously. So 100 years later, when a Victorian historian, Thomas Macaulay, is just finishing his own history, he has this in mind. And he says to his publisher, let no damn Tory index my history, because he knows that these satirical or attack indexes can totally turn the way that the way that people approach the writing that you've sort of suffered and, and bled to produce. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. This distrust of the index goes back beyond even the 18th century. It goes back as far as you like, really. There's, there's an idea that, OK, well, if people can find what they want in books, then why would they read the whole thing? So you get a worry about that. Erasmus, at the start of the 16th century, writes a book in the form of an index, because he says these days that's the only bit people read. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. 
you may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash History Extra. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And it's really interesting, it can change your perspective of the writing. But then are there any instances where the kind of, if you like, the assassination via the index had real world consequences? Or is it just sniping? Oh, well, I I mean, yeah, this one that I was talking about earlier, 1705, um, there's a Tory politician called William Bromley, an MP, who's running for Speaker of the House of Commons. And he's the chap who, 15 years earlier, has has done his grand tour of France and Italy and, as a young man, written it up. Three days before the election, a new edition comes out, published secretly by his rival, Robert Harley, that has this index um, just pointing everybody's attention to the bit where he spends a bit long, a bit too long musing about the, the carp in Lake Garda. Nothing wrong with carp, it just looks a bit stupid. Or, yeah, where he's over-impressed with meeting the Pope, for example. Nothing wrong with that. Just, do we want this person for Speaker of the House of Commons? Uh, and so on. Three days is a, is a lovely amount of time. I think sometimes we can imagine that we invented sort of really targeted timing with 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 the blogosphere how could you do that in the age of sort of typesetting and print but actually it's incredible three days is just long enough for this index to really hit the spot for everyone to have heard of the joke before they go in to vote um but not long enough for it to kind of become yesterday's news for it to have sort of slipped off the agenda sure enough harley wins and bromley loses the election And he really believes that this is because of the index. He writes this livid, petulant little note about how this, this, um, I think he says sarcastically, this very nice behaviour of the Whigs or something like that. Uh, um, But yes, so it does does have real world consequences. It does uh, end up keeping people from office because of these satirical attack indexes. And it just seems you know, a bit cleverer and a little bit shadier than writing a polemic (laughs) in a pamphlet. Um, Do you have a favourite index insult? Oh, uh, well, some of my favourite are from contemporary ones. There's there's a book by Francis Ween about modern politics called Mumbo Jumbo, and he has lovely little bits of snark in the back of that. There's one about uh, Aitken, Jonathan. I don't even remember the 
Tory politician Jonathan Aitken. says, Aitken, Jonathan, admires risk-takers, 59, goes to jail, 60. Um, and there's something about that that's so sort of brief, that, you know, the uh, um, the sequence of events. But also, you know the way that index indexes have this very brief syntax? Um, so does wit. So, so does good snark. So there's a real sort of nice um, kind of overlap between what a good index looks like and and what a good you know takedown looks like. So I love the ones like that. Paula, who did the index for my book, also blogs about when you get indexes in comedy books. So indexes to Alan Partridge or Richard Iwadi's books, sort of in character about film. Um, they often have indexes that are written in character. So you get the accidental Partridge or the Partridge-esque index. So I do love those, but I particularly love the way that Paula writes about them or draws our attention to, to all of the sort of clever humour that goes on in uh, in these comedy book indexes. Well, speaking of Paula, the secret hero of uh, your book <laughs> yeah. and many others, um, it, it didn't occur to me until I read a book there was a society of indexes. So you hand your manuscript over and someone else compiles the index. But, I mean, presumably now you had sight of that and you were able to kind of look at it. But how does that work out in history? Because we've just been talking about these people who index books and totally change the meaning of them. Well, the thing about indexing is is it, it necessarily happens at the very very end of the publishing cycle because what you need is the the page numbers to be set before the in, in, indexer can do it. So you finish your book, you send it off to the publisher. The publisher has it typeset, so you get your proof copies, and it's only then that the indexer can do it because if the page numbers are still liable to change. Then, then the index won't work. So the indexes, and this goes right back uh, as far as you like, indexes tend to be written in something of a hurry or, or with extreme sort of time pressure right at the end of the publishing cycle. So it's not always, but it's sometimes the case that they get slightly less attention or, or that while the rest of the manuscript is being proofread, um, the index isn't because we're waiting for that finally so we can typeset it so we can do the book. So things like Old Mix and um, sort of undermining uh, Lawrence Eachard happen because of that necessary uh, difference between when most of the book gets typeset and where the index, which is often on, on, on a completely different sort of choir of, of paper for that reason, because you can print that thing and then start another gathering and do the index afterwards. I really like the way that it makes us think about the materiality of books. You know, it makes us think about what's the timing? How How is a book produced in time? That it's not just you don't all send it to the printer. You you have to do it in, in at least two steps. I think writing about the index really made me much more conscious of, of what a book actually is in terms of gatherings of paper, in terms of the page number, for example. Here's another thing. Those medieval indexes, they only work for the book in which they appear. You need the invention of printing so that we can all be, as you said earlier, on the same page, so that your page 17 is definitely the same as my page 17. When we're all copying out books by hand, we don't really pay attention to, to whether we get exactly the same amount of text on each page. So an index that works for your medieval manuscript probably isn't going to work for mine because uh, um, the, the words aren't going to be exactly the same. It really takes printing and that standardization across a print run for us to be able to use page numbers uh, as a locator. And of course, that applies 
very strongly to non-fiction books. But how do you feel about indexes in fiction? Because I know people in the past have tried it, like Pope, Alexander <laughs> Pope, tried with the Iliad. And I think maybe Shakespeare as well, did he do some? He did, yeah. After, after his incredibly successful edition of Homer, which has these really good indexes, he went on to do Shakespeare. And I think he's sort of kind of lost interest in the, the Shakespeare indexes are terrible. But I think possibly there's something sort of intrinsic to, to how much actual value an index can bring to, to, to fiction. And it's maybe not the same as non-fiction. Certainly, there are categories of books that do have indexes, and one of these categories of books that do have indexes are, are uber classics. So there's there are indexes to Jane Austen, there are indexes to Lord of the Rings, there are indexes to to Proust. Um, the reason is because people come back to these, but mostly with a novel, we read them once and we read them in a linear way. We read them from page one, then we follow the story through to the end, and then we put them on the shelf or bring them to the charity shop and we don't read them again. Now, you don't need an index for that. It's like if you have a long, straight road with no turnings, you don't need any road signs. But where you have literature, even fictional literature, even novels, that people return to because they're classic, because you want to look up that quotation or because you want to look up that moment, then you do need a way of navigating them. So, so that's why you find that the sort of uber classics have got indexes. The other category of literature, that, uh, of fiction that has indexes are um, fiction that pretends to be other things. So Virginia Woolf's Orlando uh, is a novel that pretends that it's a biography and Woolf gets very upset about it. Orlando's actually called Orlando, colon, a biography. And when it first came out, it was published by Woolf herself, by her and her husband's Hogarth Press. So they stand to make money both from her being the writer, but also from them being the publishers. And because it's called Orlando, a biography, the bookshops all put it on the non-fiction shelves. And Woolf got very upset about that, thinking no one's going to be able to find it. We're going to lose money from this. So she'd just done too good a job at, at making it look like a making it look like non-fiction. Another, another novel that fits into that category is, is uh, Vladimir Nabokov's Pale Fire, which is amazing, which is just one of the, my favourite novels, um, but pretends that it's actually an epic poem. Uh, half of the novel is given over to this long poem in rhyming couplets, and that the other half of the novel is given over to its footnotes and its index. So again, it, 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 it's a novel with an index, but only because it's pretending that it isn't a novel. And in that one, the index tells part of the story, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's so so. It's a, it's an index that you have to read. Um, a bit a bit like mine, thank you. <laughs> a bit like what Paula's done with mine. She's made it a go-to destination. But Pale Fire is, is very much that. Pale Fire is a novel where if you persevere with the index, if you don't just use the index, but you read the index, there's real Easter eggs here. There's real kind of good stuff buried there. So it does seem like there's a tranche of um, publications in the kind of 18th century or which indexes are battlegrounds. And that and you kind of you do write that there there was at one point a distrust index and that people are kind of oh we're not so sure about now what what how do we get past that because it's not something now that you really consider that look up an index to find snark comments about your political rivals that's a really good point I think we do have it now now this distrust of the index goes back beyond even the 18th century. It goes back as far as you like, really. There's, there's an idea that, OK, well, if people can find what they want 
in books, then why would they read the whole thing? So you get a worry about that. Erasmus, at the start of the 16th century, writes a book in the form of an index because he says these days that's the only bit people read. So already there's there's a worry and there's snark that indexes are going to come along and people aren't going to do the, the work anymore. People aren't going to... Um, stay up reading whole books. Alexander Pope says uh, index learning, so this idea of index learning, index learning turns no student pale. So nobody's going to be burning the candle at both ends um, trying to read the whole book because index learning means that you only sort of raid it for the bits that you need. So that's the worry, that's the anxiety about indexes, that what if they, instead of being useful, what if they actually supplant um, the process of reading so that books just become, you know, like a, a herb cabinet where you just take you know, the, the morsels that you need. Um, but I don't think that's entirely gone away. Um, there's, a, there's an idea that we have today around digital reading, um, and I think it's best encapsulated in, in, in the title of a book by Nicholas Carr, uh, is Google making us stupid. So this idea that, okay, maybe we're not reading properly anymore. Maybe there's something about our reading practice that is somehow shady or somehow we're just picking and choosing what we need and not reading properly. And that's really just an iteration of, of, of this thing that we can find, like I say, as far back as you want to go. You go back to, to Plato, if you like. Plato has a, um, a dialogue called the Phaedrus, where Socrates meets his friend Phaedrus and kind of rants to him a bit about writing. God, this writing's come along and nobody remembers things properly anymore. Uh, um, we're not really present. We always think, well, I can just go back and read that later. Writing, isn't it terrible? Um, so that's the kind of the earliest version of this, this anxiety. But I don't think that writing has, um, has really, you know, sounded the death knell for scholarship. I don't think that indexes have, and I don't think that search engines have, but we still find this idea of kind of platonic ideal of reading being used as, as a sort of stick to beat the current generation and the way that they read. Well, funny, we mentioned search engines in there. This is a good way to jump into this point because one argument you make is that, in a way, we're all indexes because of the way we use the internet now. Good. Yes, that's exactly right. Now, every time you use a, a hashtag, the idea of a hashtag is that, well, if you all use the same hashtag, um, then anyone who searches for that hashtag will be able to find it. This is the idea of indexing, essentially. So the hashtag is just a sort of uh, um, online social media version of, of the index headword. Um, so every time we, we sort of hashtag our, our tweets or our Insta, we're really just using the idea of, of uh, labelling an index headword. We're all, as you say, indexes. It's become a kind of democratised process again. It can go wrong. So this, this I, I said that we've all um, become indexes again, just like the, the medieval period where we would have to index our own books. Now with hashtags, we, we index our own material that we upload but we do need to think about this because uh, uh, we're not all professional indexers from the Society of Indexes, and these things can go wrong. For example, um, Susan Boyle, Susan Boyle's fourth album uh, came out, and the publicity around it used a hashtag, um, Susan Album Party. It's just come out, hashtag Susan Album Party. Trouble with that is um, it can be read in two ways, um, and Twitter, unfortunately, had a field day with that one. Uh, they did indeed. I feel like one way I should approach this towards the end is I should just pick something out of your index to uh, throw at you and see what happens. What does the Emperor Titus have to do with anything? 
<laughs> okay, the Emperor Titus is the dedicatee of um, Pliny's Natural History. And Pliny's Natural History is interesting, not because it has an index, but because it has a table of contents. It's one of four classical works that we know definitely had table of contents, which is slightly different. But in the introduction uh, to Pliny's Natural History, Pliny says to the Emperor Emperor Titus, I've included a table of contents here so that you won't, I'm paraphrasing, but so that because you're so busy and important, so that you won't have to waste time reading the whole book. So what's really fascinating about that is right back then we get the idea of not having to read the whole book. Um, so I think, yeah, let's let's think about our anxieties about search or 18th century anxieties or Erasmus's anxieties. Pliny's already put his finger on it, and he said, it's okay, or at least it's okay if you're the emperor. I'm so impressed that you were able to do that off the cuff from like a round of So pleased it wasn't just like, oh, that, that's just a chapter heading. Um, so, okay, as a final um, a final question, the index, it, it can be a very subjective thing. Uh, we've learned through many examples. So, as someone who loves indexes and loves books, what is the correct way to organise your bookshelf? I like to have a, a bit of randomness, um, but people listening won't be able to see this. But but like like everyone at the moment, I'm sitting in front. I'm sitting on a Zoom in front of my um, bookshelf. Um, I quite like the subjectivity. I like the idea that I know where things are on my bookshelf, um, but other people don't. I always had this with my parents' bookshelves as well. This idea that having sat in front of them for so long, so. Um, it does sound like I should be the person who puts them in alphabetical order or colour order, but I actually prefer the opposite. Um, I, ha I like to have bookshelves where it's only through um, through use, um, through wearing in, through sort of patience and familiarity that, that you really know your way around it. That was Dennis Duncan. His book is called Index, A Brief History of Them, and was published by Alan Lane in September 2021. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley. We'll be back tomorrow when Matthew Stevens will be answering your questions on medieval Wales. Um.